Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 35. It was great chatting with a bunch of listeners at ASAP. We really appreciate all the positive feedback. This week, we're going to start out with a couple of diarrhea questions to link up with the last EM clerkship episode. In addition to that, we're going to do a few randomly generated questions as well. And before we jump into the rapid review, don't forget that we're in the midst of a trauma ringtone contest. Listen closely for the ringtone during an upcoming episode and email us at roshcast at roshreview.com or tweet to us at, at roshcast the exact time of the ringtone to win a prize, which will certainly come in handy as we get closer and closer to the in-training exam. Let's warm up with a quick review from the recent Rosh Review blog posts. What is a pterygium and how is it managed? A pterygium is a triangular growth from the medial canthus towards the cornea. They are usually slow-growing and seen in those with excessive sunlight exposure. They're managed with artificial tears. Typically, they don't require surgery, but they may need excision if they're causing a visual disturbance. Make sure the patient is already following with an ophthalmologist or give them a referral if needed. And how does a retinal detachment typically present? Retinal detachments present with painless loss of vision, floaters, flashing lights, or has a curtain lowering sensation. On physical, you may see a hazy gray retina with whitish folds. Changing gears entirely, what's the most common location for an ectopic pregnancy? The most common location for an ectopic pregnancy? That'd be the fallopian tube. Great review. Let's get started with the new material. A two-year-old female presents after a witness seizure. For the past two days, she missed daycare due to episodes of bloody diarrhea and a fever. Her vitals here show a temperature of 103, heart rate of 167, blood pressure of 73 over 43, respiratory rate of 48, and oxygen saturation of 96%. She has a normal neurologic exam and minimal abdominal tenderness. There are no rashes. Labs show a white count of 19,000, and urinalysis reveals an elevated specific gravity. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? Is it A, acetaminophen for fever and follow-up with a primary care doctor? B, blood and stool cultures, IV antibiotics, and admission? C, neurology consultation and admission? Or D, oral antibiotics and follow-up with a primary care doctor? Lots going on here. So we have a two-year-old with a witness seizure in the setting of a fever. This could be a simple febrile seizure. So you're going to go with choice A, acetaminophen and PMD follow-up. Not quite. It could be a simple febrile seizure, but there's a lot more going on. The bloody diarrhea and dehydration, as indicated by the low normal blood pressure and the high specific gravity in the urine, this makes me more concerned for a more severe enteric infection. So I'm going to go with choice B, blood and stool cultures, IV antibiotics, and admission. Great thought process. They're describing a presentation of shigellosis here. Patients with shigella often have high fevers, abdominal cramps, and diarrhea with mucus or blood. And as in this case, infants can also present with seizures. But wait, I thought the treatment for Shigella was supportive care. And the answer here calls for cultures, IV antibiotics, and admission? While all patients should get supportive care, there are some who require more treatments, like those who are immunocompromised, those with evidence of bacteremia, those who require hospitalization, those who attend daycare, or those in a nursing home. So this patient actually has several of those features. Daycare requires hospitalization, and the possibility of bacteremia, given how sick she appears from her vital signs. Right, so in addition to supportive care with acetaminophen and IV fluids, this patient needs antibiotics. Which antibiotics would you want to start for her? I'm going to be honest, I'm not really sure. For children with shigellosis requiring antibiotics, consider treatment with ceftriaxone at 50 mg per kilogram IV in a single dose for 5 days, with a maximum of 1.5 grams per dose. Ceftriaxone for Shigella? I can remember that. All right, we're going from the very young to the very old for this next one. Let's head over to the Jerry ED. An 82-year-old nursing home resident is sent to the emergency department with lower abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. 
He has a history of vascular dementia, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. On exam, he's afebrile, and a nasogastric aspirate is negative for evidence of bleeding. Which of the following is the most likely cause of the patient's bleeding? Is it A, angiodysplasia, B, diverticular bleeding, C, ischemic colitis, or D, peptic ulcer disease? Given the emphasis in this question on its extensive vascular history, I'm going to go with answer choice C, ischemic colitis. That's correct, but can you also define ischemic colitis for us and explain why that's correct in this case? Sure. Ischemic colitis is caused by inadequate blood flow through the mesenteric vessels. Reduced blood flow leads to ischemia and in severe cases, gangrene of the bowel wall. It usually presents with a crampy abdominal pain with tenderness over the affected area, along with a bloody diarrhea or even the passage of frank blood. And how does this differ from mesenteric ischemia? They seem pretty similar. Well, mesenteric ischemia typically presents with pain out of proportion exam and a very acute onset. Ischemic colitis, on the other hand, is often less severe and less acute in onset. And how is ischemic colitis treated? That'll depend on the degree of ischemia. If there's peritonitis or possible infarction, it will probably require immediate surgical intervention. Thankfully, this only occurs in about 20% of cases. The vast majority of cases can be treated with supportive care, like IV fluids and bowel rest. And you began to identify some of the risk factors when you answered the question up front, but can you list them out for us? Risk factors for ischemic colitis include a history of atherosclerotic disease, advanced age, sepsis, and extreme exercise. All right, and the last related question here. Where does ischemic colitis typically occur? Although it can occur anywhere in the large bowel, it's often seen in the watershed areas. Those are the areas that are at the border of a territory supplied by two arteries. Two watershed areas to remember are the splenic flexure, which is covered by distal branches of both the superior and inferior mesenteric arteries, as well as the left lower quadrant in the area supplied by both the inferior mesenteric and internal iliac arteries. Great review. I'll run through the other answer choices. Choice A, angiodysplasia. That's a degenerative lesion of a healthy blood vessel. They are commonly found in the cecum and usually present with hematochesia. Angiodysplasia is also a, typically a chronic and recurrent problem. Additionally, the bleeding is usually painless. Choice B, diverticular bleeding. That's the most common cause of lower GI bleeds. The classic presentation will be abrupt onset of painless rectal bleeding. Lastly, choice D, peptic ulcer disease, that can cause an upper GI bleed, which could present in any number of ways. Coffee ground emesis, dysphagia, black stools, and even chest pain. Okay, let's move across the hall to the psych ED for the next one. Which of the following is considered a risk factor for suicide? Is it A, being female, B, first trimester pregnancy, C, first year of marriage, or D, recent incarceration? I'm pretty sure that males are at higher risk than females, so choice A isn't right. I would hope that marriage would be protective and not actually a risk, so that eliminates choice C. I know the postpartum period is a risk, but I'm not so sure about the first trimester. I'll play it safe and go with choice D. Recent incarceration is a risk factor for suicide. Great way to work through the question. You're right that marriage and pregnancy are both protective, and being female is not a risk factor. In the answer, it also explicitly states recent incarceration. How does this change over time as ex-convicts distance themselves from the time in prison? During their first two weeks after release, the suicide risk is up to 12 times that of the general population. Wow, that's much higher than I would have predicted. Yeah, it's actually almost as high as the risk of those individuals who have been recently released from an inpatient psychiatric facility. What are some other risk factors? Age is a risk factor with both adolescents and the elderly being at increased risk. And as you just alluded to, a history of mental illness, including a previous suicide attempt, is also a risk. And I believe unemployment is a risk as well. Yeah, and I'll add a few more. Poor physical health, being Caucasian, isolation, poor financial situation, 
and personal or family history of a suicide attempt. Definitely a lot to look out for. All right, let's go back over to the PZD. Which of the following scenarios is the most appropriate to safely discharge a two-year-old who has swallowed a coin? Is it A, the child is not drooling? B, the child is tolerating oral sips and the parents are reliable? C, the coin is in the stomach? Or D, the coin is oriented in the sagittal plane at the level of the clavicular heads? The pediatric swallowed coin, something that happens far more frequently than I could have ever imagined. The answer here is choice C, the coin is in the stomach. Excellent, but can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Anatomically, one of the narrowest parts of the GI tract is in the esophagus. This means that once a foreign body successfully transits the esophagus and enters the stomach, it rarely causes major difficulties and will usually be expelled uneventfully in a few days. However, if it gets stuck in the esophagus, it can cause severe complications, including perforation as well as esophageal erosion. And those complications you just mentioned are truly rare, occurring about 2% of the time, which is why you'll want to consult either ENT or GI to arrange for endoscopy if the foreign body doesn't pass into the stomach on its own. Do you remember the specific locations where obstruction is the most likely? Mm, you mean like top, middle, bottom? Uh, yeah, I guess that was a bit of a read-my-mind question. Esophageal obstruction occurs more commonly at C6, then T4, and then T11. And what signs on physical would indicate the need for an emergent endoscopy? Emergent endoscopy is indicated if the foreign body is a battery, if it's sharp, or if there are signs of obstruction. Nice. And do you remember what choice D, a coin oriented in the sagittal plane at the level of the clavicular heads, is actually referring to? Coins oriented in the sagittal plane are more likely to be in the trachea than in the esophagus. Esophageal coins often lie in the coronal position because the opening of the esophagus is much wider in that orientation. Okay, let's move down the GI tract for the next question. A 35-year-old man with a history of occasional bloody diarrhea and abdominal pain presents with an episode of acute-onset severe abdominal pain. Vital signs are significant for a temperature of 39 degrees Celsius, a heart rate of 140, and a blood pressure of 82 over 55. On his physical exam, his abdomen is distended and tympanic. Which of the following diagnostic studies is indicated at this time? Is it A, an abdominal radiograph, B, a barium enema, C, a CT scan of the abdomen, or D, sigmoidoscopy. You definitely have to make some assumptions here. First, the hint that the patient has a history of occasional bloody diarrhea and abdominal pain, that could be suggestive of underlying and probably undiagnosed IBD. Given how sick he is, febrile, really tacky, hypotensive, I'm concerned for an intra-abdominal catastrophe. Although a CT scan may be needed, a quicker test, choice A, should be done first to rule out toxic megacolon, given his distended and tympanic abdomen. Yeah, this presentation is very suspicious for toxic megacolon, which is a known and feared complication of IBD. The hallmark of toxic megacolon is colonic dilatation with systemic toxicity. Patients typically also report the symptoms of colitis for several days before the onset. Although a CT scan would reveal the same findings, in such a sick patient, the diagnosis should be made by an abdominal radiograph, which will likely reveal dilatation of the colon to a diameter of greater than 6 centimeters. The real key here is the presence of inflammation and toxicity, which differentiates toxic megacolon from other colon dilating pathologies like mechanical obstruction, pseudoobstruction, and congenital megacolon. Although this patient likely has IBD, what other conditions and disease processes can precipitate toxic megacolon? There are a few to remember here. IBD is certainly the most common, but pseudomembranous colitis, CMV colitis, and bacterial colitis, they can also all precipitate toxic megacolon. And I'll just quickly round out the other answer choices before the last question. 
Choice B, a barium enema, that's explicitly contraindicated if there's suspicion for toxic megacolon. Choice C, a CT scan, that would be an acceptable test, but the patient is unstable and an abdominal x-ray should be done first. And choice D, sigmoidoscopy, that's used to establish the diagnosis of ulcerative colitis, among other things, but it would not be appropriate in this setting as the patient has a surgical abdomen. All right, so let's close this episode out with one final question. A 45-year-old woman complains of two days of fluctuating diplopia and dysphagia. Her exam reveals a cranial nerve 6 palsy, ptosis, and proximal muscle weakness in her extremities. What is the pathophysiology of her disease? Is it A, antibodies to the acetylcholine receptor at the neuromuscular junction? B, inhibition of the acetylcholine release at the synapse? C, mutation of superoxide dismutase causing cell death? Or D, reduced number of dopamine receptors in the midbrain? Proximal weakness, fluctuating diplopia, and dysphagia. This sounds like myasthenia gravis, which is caused by choice A, antibodies to the acetylcholine receptor at the neuromuscular junction. Great step one recall there. This patient is having a myasthenic crisis with many of the common symptoms. Ptosis and diplopia are the most common first symptoms, followed by dysphagia, proximal muscle weakness, and dyspnea. In the later stages of the disease, patients may experience respiratory failure due to flaccid paralysis of the muscles of respiration. And although this question doesn't mention it, the acute myasthenic crisis is often triggered by an infection or a medication. And how is a myasthenic crisis treated? It can be treated with either plasma exchange or IVIG. ICE also temporarily decreases symptoms, but clearly that's not a permanent solution. And how about diagnosis? How do you do that? The edrophonium or tensilon test can be used to diagnose myasthenia gravis. In this test, if the symptoms improve, this is considered a positive test and the patient has myasthenia gravis. This occurs because edrophonium is an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, so after it's injected, it prevents the breakdown of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, which increases the availability of acetylcholine. If you missed this question, we discussed myasthenia gravis quite a bit in our first ever Roshcast episode. After listening to this episode, go all the way back to the beginning and take a listen there too. Sound advice. Do you remember what pathology causes choice B, inhibition of acetylcholine release at the synapse? That would be the botulinum toxin. This causes a descending symmetric paralysis. And what about choice C, a mutation of the superoxide dismutase enzyme, which leads to cell destruction? Oh, that's referring to ALS. ALS usually presents with muscle weakness, atrophy, fasciculations, dysarthria, and dysphagia, while sparing sensory and cognitive function. And what about choice D, a reduced number of dopamine receptors in the midbrain? Parkinson's disease is associated with depigmentation and dopaminergic neuron loss in the midbrain, specifically in the substantia nigra. Parkinson's disease is characterized by tremor, cogwheel rigidity, bradykinesia or akinesia, and postural and equilibrium impairment. And let's close this episode out with a quick rapid review. Patients with Shigella often present with fever, abdominal cramps, and diarrhea with mucus or blood. Infants with Shigella are also at risk for seizures. Shigellosis should be treated supportively. Patients that are immunocompromised, those with bacteremia, patients who attend daycare, and those who live in a nursing home require treatment with antibiotics. Children should be treated with ceftriaxone, 50 milligrams per kilogram in a once-daily dose, up to a max of 1.5 grams for five days. Ischemic colitis is caused by inadequate blood flow through the mesenteric vessels. It often affects the watershed regions. Ischemic colitis can be treated supportively with bowel rest and IV fluids unless there are signs of peritonitis or infarction. Risk factors for suicide include male sex, age, history of mental illness, previous personal or family history of a suicide attempt, poor financial situation, unemployment, 
poor physical health, being Caucasian, and isolation. With respect to suicide, marriage and first trimester pregnancy are both protective. Swallowed foreign bodies that do not pass through the esophagus, which occurs 2% of the time, have a risk for esophageal perforation or erosion. Emergent endoscopy is indicated if the swallowed foreign body is a battery, is sharp, or there are signs of obstruction. Coins in the sagittal plane on x-ray are more likely to be in the trachea than in the esophagus. Toxic megacolon presents with colonic dilatation and systemic toxicity. Patients usually present after having symptoms of colitis for several days. If there's concern for toxic megacolon, an abdominal x-ray should be the first imaging study to look for colonic dilatation to a diameter of greater than 6 centimeters. Toxic megacolon can be precipitated by IBD, pseudomembranous colitis, CMV colitis, and bacterial colitis. Myasthenia gravis is caused by antibodies to the acetylcholine receptor at the neuromuscular junction. Ptosis and diplopia are the most common first symptoms of a myasthenic crisis. This is followed by proximal muscle weakness, dysphagia, and dyspnea. Respiratory failure can be seen in the later stages. Myasthenia gravis can be diagnosed by the hydrophonium or tensilon test. Myasthenia gravis can be treated with plasma exchange and IVIG therapy. Ice decreases the symptoms, but this clearly isn't a permanent solution. All right, so that wraps up Roshcast episode 35. Be sure to check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help you prepare for the boards and the words. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and Rosh Review. And you can always email us at Roshcast or RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you would like for us to review. Write, quote, Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review.